Hello and welcome to the University of Richmond Law Review podcast. My name is Ollie Ward. I'm the online editor for Volume 55. Our guest today is Professor Maybel Romero, who is Associate Professor of Law at Northern Illinois University. Professor Romero joined NIU Law in 2017, having previously served as both a state's attorney and defense attorney during her decade of practice in Utah. Her research interests include criminal law, constitutional law, and juvenile justice, and she's written a fantastic piece for the University of Richmond Law Review entitled Prosecutors and Police, an Unholy Union, uh, which will be published later this year. Professor Mabel Romero, thank you so much for coming on the University of Richmond Law Review podcast. Well, thanks uh, for having me. Could you give us uh, a brief idea of, of where this piece, the idea for this piece came from and the kind of events leading up to uh, the writing of this piece? So I used to be a local prosecutor on the county level. I, I used to practice in Utah. So I have a little bit of familiarity with, you know, personally, with how the job is usually done and some of the um, difficulties that come with doing it and some of the sorts of pressures that come with the job. And following the national news just a couple of years ago, I was really shocked to see that in, particularly in St. Louis recently, um, right before Wesley Bell was sworn in as St. Louis County Prosecutor. Now, let me explain Wesley Bell. Um, you know, he, he was getting elected to this new position, um, brand new to the entire sort of running a prosecutor's office sort of game, um, unseating an incumbent, an incumbent who was who was the elected prosecutor when um, a lot of um, the sort of stuff in Ferguson, Missouri was going down. Um, right. So Wesley Bell came in as a reformer. He is relatively young. He's, uh, he is black. This is just something that is rather unorthodox and not seen all that often in that area. So Wesley Bell was elected with a sort of reform mandate. And right before um, he was sworn in, um, many of the, assistant prosecutors in the office that he was going to take over took this very strange step to vote privately to join the St. Louis Police Officers Association, which is really unusual. If you're familiar with how prosecution works in the United States, most of the time they aren't formally unionizing. There might be prosecution associations and other sorts of interest groups, but to actually enter into a formalized union, but to also do that with police um, is very strange and I found very concerning. Um, I've been cognizant of there being entirely, I feel, too close of a relationship between prosecutors and police um, in their work lives, oftentimes in their personal lives, but to the point that they were actually unionizing together um, really scared me to, to start seeing this. And I felt that I had to write this paper warning of the potential problems that could arise from this before it starts um, spreading throughout the rest of the country. Right. And I think St. Louis is a really interesting place to start because it's sort of, as you say in your paper, the ground zero for the recent sort of unionization of local prosecutors and also um, brings to light some of the uh, the other themes that's been theme that's been going on in, in prosecution in America, which is the rise of progressive prosecutors generally. And um, I think um, before we go any further with that, it, just to recap, when we're talking about prosecutors in your paper, we're talking about the the, the line prosecutors um, who work for the district attorneys. Is that, have I got that right? 
I think you do have that right. I, I generally, in all of my research, um, shy away from writing about federal prosecutors because I feel like there has already been a lot of coverage in, of federal prosecutors in legal scholarship. So I focus exclusively on local prosecutors, county prosecutors, city prosecutors, small town prosecutors, and um, not just the ones who are elected, but also ones who are appointed line prosecutors and the like. So I like getting down sort of into the nitty gritty of the prosecution sort of game here. And how does this unholy union between those line prosecutors and the police unions prevent uh, criminal justice reform? And um, in St. Louis, I know we've had not just Wesley Bell, but Kim Gardner, uh, who is the, I believe, the city of St. Louis um, district attorney, whereas Wesley Bell is the, the, the St. Louis County, I think. Um, yes. and, and Kim Gardner herself, who's also uh, a woman of color and a reformist, she has filed a lawsuit against uh, the city of St. Louis. And, and essentially, she's invoking an act that was passed to um, fight the Ku Klux Klan in the 19th century. And um, she's had her own battles with the sort of vested interests in St. Louis. The main point I want to get at is, is how these relationships and what you view as improper relationships between prosecutors and police uh, impede criminal justice reform, not just in St. Louis, but, but across America. I appreciate you bringing up this, um, this issue of what Kim Gardner's going through. Um, she is the city of St. Louis's elected prosecutor. She is the first black circuit attorney in St. Louis. Um, and it's really fascinating to see this litigation unfold in that she is using, and I, I find it fascinating, um, she's using this act called the Ku Klux Klan Act it's actually called that. Oh, right. That is specifically meant to. Um, it, it, it's it, it's meant to prevent sort of this broad collusive conduct that is um, based on this sort of motivation to deny the civil rights of racial minorities um, right. by obstructing government efforts to ensure you know equal protection, equal justice um, for everyone. Um, so it, I find it really really interesting that she's invoking this act with just this very evocative name from the 1800s um, in that these are still the problems that we're having to deal with. Uh, Of course, you know, um, she's also claiming that these actions by these sorts of entrenched interests like um, the police and the like um, violate the fourth and 14th amendments as well. And I think you see this becoming even more serious potentially when you have police unions Um, and prosecutors coming together um, throughout the United States. And really what you see here is this entirely overly close cooperation between prosecutors and police, such that prosecutors don't really feel like they have the ability to make the sort of independent decisions that they should be able to make apart from having to consider what the police think about what they're doing. Um, So what I argue in the paper is that you see a host of ethical conflicts of interest arise um, for the prosecutors, for the police involved, um, and even just for the union itself as its own entity for those who are interested in um, labor law in particular. Um, But also what you see when prosecutors join police is that it it sort of supports this view that prosecutors collude with the police, you know, for their own economic benefit, for their own political gain, um, to prevent criminal justice reform from taking root. Even when you've got reformist prosecutors like Kim Gardner or Wesley Bell in office, 
and that, you know, these offices deep down to their core are just system, systematically racist. Um, so th- I think that appearance even is really problematic. Um, I think the fact that police unions have historically been used to um, shield police officers from misconduct and that this could be spreading even further to prosecutors is also a problem. Um, and I'm happy to talk more about what these problems look like um, practically and how they might unfold as well. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think um, I think a lot of people would be surprised to hear that uh, prosecutors and police uh, are working too closely together in some senses, because I think, as, as you mentioned in your paper, that sort of traditional law and order uh, view of, of their relationship is that, you know, they are two separate entities. Actually, I can I can even play the clip from, from law and order that I think you're referencing. Uh, let's see. <laughs> in the criminal justice system. The people are represented by two separate yet equally important groups, the police who investigate crime and the district attorneys who prosecute the offenders. These are their stories. So that sort of traditional picture of how police and prosecutors sort of work separately is is not the way things are these days, is is what you're arguing. And and, and can you sort of categorize some of the ways in which uh, those relationships work? So obviously there must be some sort of personal relationships that are unavoidable between police and prosecutors. How, how much of a problem are those? I mean, I think those personal relationships are really problematic. I, I do briefly mention perhaps, you know, even very personal relationships that happen in, especially um, when you're looking at sort of one-on-one relationships between prosecutors and police. Occasionally what you'll see is, uh, you know, friendships that arise and sometimes personal relationships, perhaps even romantic relationships. And I I do think that those are um, problematic, but perhaps inevitable when you have people working together. Um, But I do think that a lot of these sorts of more personal relationships can extend into more of the um, sort of political arena. And that's what I get really worried about in particular. And you see police unions having a really, really strong influence in particular in prosecutor unions. And this is something that really concerns me. Um, one, one of these sorts of circumstances I highlight in the paper um, is you know, not just in the context of prosecutorial election, but also even just um, in law reform generally. Um, you see this close relationship between the two camps um, to really, I think, work oftentimes for rather unjust ends. In particular, in the paper, I look at this con- continued struggle over California's felony murder rule. Um, the felony murder rule, of course, once classified homicides committed during a set of enumerated felonies as first-degree murders in California, um, even if the killing or homicide in question was unintended. And there was recently a California Senate bill that was signed by Governor Jerry Brown um, that was supposed to go into effect in 2019. um, And both police and prosecutors were very upset about this. So you see the California State Sheriff's Association, the Police Chiefs Association, the District Attorneys Association, they come together as one force each to oppose the elimination of the felony murder rule, even though this is something that, um, you know, these duly elected representatives in California um, are doing because they think this is what their electorate wants. The sheriffs and the district attorneys, they don't care. Um, And these are the sorts of really pernicious influences that I think you see when you have both these camps working too closely together, perhaps even unionizing together and really trying to flummox criminal justice reform this way. And has the Supreme Court ruled on anything related to um, how prosecutors should act regarding the police uh, and vice versa? And 
Um, in what ways has the Supreme Court jurisprudence fallen short in your view? Oh my gosh, I wish they have. So really what you see is there's this one case, Berger versus United States, that really explains the ethical duties incumbent upon, upon prosecutors. So I could just cover that verbatim for you real quick if you'd like. Sure. Um, but, you know, the, the, it explains that the prosecutor is a representative and not of an ordinary party to a controversy, but of a sovereignty whose obligation to govern impartially is as compelling as its obligation to govern at all. And whose interest, therefore, in a criminal prosecution is not that shall win a case, but that justice shall be done. This is so vague. It's exceptionally <laughs> vague. And no, you know, there's a lot of scholarship out there that debates, okay, what does it mean to do justice? What is the prosecutor's duty to be a min when it's when it comes to being a minister of justice? Right. Um, and how do we go about really getting our hands around this? Because it's exceptionally vague. And while this language from Berger sounds really nice. I have to admit that in sort of this aspirational sense, I really like it that, look, a prosecutor really needs to make sure that justice is done. And there's sort of a, a strange beauty to that in that it is so open to interpretation. I interpret it rather expansively myself. But when it comes to practice, um, yes. it makes things really difficult. So it's not necessarily clear what prosecutors should do in the name of you know, prosecuting vigorously or effectively. And the, really the Supreme Court's jurisprudence and Senate is totally inadequate. Um, it really doesn't address issues so much of prosecutorial misconduct. There's very little guidance out there. And what you see is that prosecutors are consistently protected from any real scrutiny or transparency um, from the court. Um, the court is very, I think, you know, very understandably wary of stepping on toes and telling anyone from the executive branch how to go about and do their jobs. Um, but again, there's sort of this dearth of ethical guidance that's ever pro provided whatsoever. Um, so I think this is actually really problematic. I think, um, you know, Professor Angela Davis has noted in her work that these sorts of standards are so permissive and so lax. And, you know, this lack of guidance can actually explain in part why prosecutorial misconduct has become such a problem of late. So we don't have too much help from the Supreme Court. And in terms of other sort of standards that have been set out, perhaps, is there anything the ABA has has um, sort of promulgated in its model rules or any sort of ABA standards that we can point to where we have uh, some kind of practically workable statement of what the ideal relationship between prosecutors and police should be like what, what in you if you could you know wave a magic wand and, and um, <laughs> tell prosecutors and police what their relationship should be like how would you sum it up so I think you know the ABA does purport to give some guidance to prosecutors with what they should be doing through you know the model rules of professional conduct um, you know um, everyone's going to everyone who's gone to law school will be at least familiar with those <laughs> but um, just to explain to those who might not know um, you know, some form of the model rules have been adopted by every state to some extent, you know, perhaps not in, in total, um, but some of these rules have been adopted and they're supposed to give guidance to attorneys generally as to how to go about their jobs in, you know, ethical fashion, how, how to go about representing um, your client to the best of your abilities while still staying within the bounds of sort of ethical considerations. Right. Um, but there have also been, beyond that, the criminal justice standards for the prosecution function that have been promulgated um, that go along with these model rules. What I find really interesting about these is that 
they do try to provide more um, concrete standards and they do try to provide sort of a, a sort of blueprint for um, what a good prosecutor should be doing. So for example, the prosecution standards say that, you know, ideally a prosecutor should be someone who is a full-time prosecutor rather than a part-time prosecutor. Um, ideally, um, you know, a prosecutor um, should be seeking justice. Again, you see that sort of nebulous sort of um, standard come up. Um, so while there are some guidelines that are put out there, you know, it, the standards mention that, you know, there's some very plainly unethical things that you shouldn't be doing, like, um, you know, trying to influence your case through the media too much, or that you should hand over discovery or something like that when you're required to do so. Um, there really isn't that much in the way of guidance as to you know, sort of prosecutorial philosophy or how you should go about doing that. Oh. Nor is there really that much in the way of guidance as to um, the influences that prosecutors should consider when they're trying to figure out what to do with their cases. So it doesn't, they don't necessarily say, oh, you know, don't take into consideration what the prosecutor says or the, what the victim says or what the community thinks. It's, it's very sort of broad that way. So again, there's very little guidance in that sense as well. Um, and part of what I'm trying to do with this paper in particular is really highlight the sort of dangers that come from that lack of guidance and this increased cooperation, I think, of late between prosecutors and police, such that their positions sort of start to collapse onto each other. Um, and there's a reason that prosecutors and police, you know, they, there's a reason they have separate roles, right? Oh. Police should be investigating, um, whereas prosecutors should take the, the product of that investigation and figure out how to run with it after that, without the influence of the police really controlling what they do. Right. Um, so that's really what I advocate for in this paper more. Sum up the, the crux of the problem here. Is your point that as separate institutions, as prosecutors on the one hand, police on the other, we have too little guidance from the Supreme Court and, and other authorities on prosecutorial ethics uh, on the one hand, and then we have hardly any recourse to sort of fight police misconduct and and that sort of thing on the other hand and that sort of combining these two institutions and and having all these uh incestuous relationships between the two institutions we have an even bigger problem on our hands what you see in particular and you know it's sort of something that a lot of people haven't really had the chance to study a lot of is that when you have prosecutors and police come together and they really start working too closely together i think what you see is um a cultural shift that i think is really um not that good of a thing. Um, and you see this really described in other industries, like when we're talking about, you know, healthcare, when we're talking about the aerospace industry as being um, a normalization of deviance, sort of this normalization of things going wrong and just sort of accepting it. And what you see is that um, this sort of normalization of deviance, um, it occurs a lot of the time in um, industries or in sort of professions where you have groups of people who are conducting hazardous activities in these complex organizations um, by, you know, generally dedicated and highly trained people. And I think that's what you have when you have prosecutors and police. Um, I actually do think that most people who go into prosecution and into policing initially do it um, out of a sense of wanting to serve their community or out of a sense of doing something good. And they're actually very dedicated to their jobs and they actually do receive a good amount of training. But 
these jobs, for lack of a better way of putting it, are really weird in that you know, you're constantly engaged in hazardous activities. If you're a cop, um, you know, if you're a prosecutor, you're engaged in hazardous activity in that, you know, not necessarily to yourself, but to others potentially in that you're yanking them away from their everyday lives and potentially putting them in cages, exposing them to, you know, very hazardous um, sorts of conditions. Um, so these are really like high, pr- high pressure sorts of jobs. Um, high pressure sorts of jobs with a lot of discretion, with a lot of power. And I think when you see these sorts of groups of people come together, um, you actually have much more of the sort of potential for a normalization of deviance such that everyone accepts um, sort of problematic behavior as sort of the cost of doing business. And I really think that that is a huge problem. And I think that this could really explain a lot of rampant prosecutorial misconduct along with um, police misconduct. And that when um, these two organizations get even more closely enmeshed, that they aggravate each other to do even more of that together. Um, And so the final part of your paper talks about what we do about all this. Uh, And you talk about some interventions that might um, help with the problem. And you talk about some other industries and sectors that have dealt with analogous problems and um, found some solutions, maybe not, you know, magic silver bullets. But for example, you talk about physicians and um, physicians are, you say, like prosecutors in the sense that they have been known to be a little self-righteous, a bit self-important potentially, and those character flaws, for want of a better word, can lead to poor judgment and medical error and misconduct. How do you see the way that uh, physicians have operated and, and the solutions that have, have been brought to bear on that industry? How, how, how would they work in this prosecutorial police arena? You know, and I appreciate you covering this particular um, example of this other industry that I think that um, prosecutors and, you know, legal scholars could actually learn a lot from. And, you know, there's been a lot of literature with regard to sort of the um, behavioral organizational characteristics of physicians in particular. And, you know, you read you read descriptions of physicians and sort of their generalized character flaws. And they sounded a lot to me like prosecutors, like what you were saying, oftentimes a bit overconfident, perhaps self-righteous, perhaps um, because of that a little bit reckless sometimes in the way they go about doing these sorts of things. Right. And, um, you know, I think what you see is that in the medical profession in particular, you see a lot more of this focus on, well, how do we change this culture? This culture that seems to be pervasive in this profession um, where, you know, how do we inculcate what's known as a safety culture instead? This culture that seems to understand more that, you know, we have this great responsibility and that with this great responsibility also comes the ability that we could really hurt someone quite badly. Um, So how do we put safety at top of mind rather than this sort of like go get them culture where, you know, perhaps you clear as many, um, not necessarily cases, but, you know, as, as many you know issues that patients might have off as possible in the most mm-hmm. efficient way or something like that. How do we make this um, more safety minded? And what you see is that there's this trend in um, areas like infection control and in public health um, where there's a target for um, this aspirational zero tolerance 
of having, um, you know, hospital-borne infections, for example, or other preventable bad things from happening. And I think people get really scared of this language of zero tolerance, especially in the context of the law, um, because it has meant something very different. It, it has meant, you know, perhaps mandatory prosecutions for in certain cases. It has meant, um, you know, um, all sorts of things when it comes to um, probation and the like. But when I'm talking about zero tolerance here, I'm talking about this aspiration that prosecutors should have, much like doctors do nowadays, to have um, you know no no accidents, no adverse effect, no adverse events, and you know really be trying to figure out how do we constantly stretch toward this aspirational goal. Um, and I'm not saying necessarily that I expect prosecutors to suddenly be perfect. I don't necessarily want the perfect to be an enemy of the good. Um, but having aspirations, I think, is a good thing. And oftentimes, I think a lot of what you see, especially with prosecutors and with cops, is, you know, we're just trying to get by day by day and do the best that we can. I think we can hope for better, um, I, at least as long as we have a criminal legal system in place. I'll, I'll be very blunt and say that, yes, I am, you know, over, not necessarily thinking that this can happen instantaneously, but I am an abolitionist. Um, mm -hmm. But having aspirations to stretch to, I think, is really important. And I think prosecutors could potentially be much more amenable to this cultural change that I'm talking about if there was a bit more um, of a distance assessment on their part of police action misconduct. Um, so if they were not quite as entangled with police in prosecutorial unions, mm -hmm. and other sorts of professional organizations and the like, they'd be able to do this, I think, a bit more easily. Um, and what you see too is much more, at least in the medical field, um, this sort of push toward getting doctors to understand that, you know, you're human, sometimes you make mistakes, this is why it's okay to lean on each other, to try to learn, to try to reach out to other to figure out, you know, am I doing this right? Yeah. And I think prosecutors are very, they sometimes live in their own little bubble, I think, where they're like, okay, I'm making all these right decisions. I have all this discretion and, you know, I'm so gung-ho about getting these cases done without per perhaps reaching out to other prosecutors in their own office or maybe even, um, you know, other prosecutors in different jurisdictions, like, well, is this a normal way of handling this? And I think that's something that could certainly be encouraged a bit more. Um, and, I, you know, I think that there's much to learn from the medical field in that sense. Do you think, given the cultural pressures on prosecutors, the sort of environment they work in, is the idea of a progressive prosecutor, which, you know, we've seen in various jurisdictions in the US, I'm thinking of Wesley Bell and Kim Gardner in St. Louis, Larry Krasner in Philadelphia, Rachel Rollins in, in Boston, and so on. Is that an oxymoron? Is it a contradiction in terms to, to hope that a prosecutor can act progressively. I mean, I think that's what's really difficult about talking about progressive prosecutors. And I have an essay that's going to be coming out um, later this um, fall as well in the Journal of Criminal Law and Criminology Symposium issue that argues that um, you can't be progressive and be a prosecutor, actually. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of the difficulty in talking about progressive prosecutors is trying to figure out what exactly that means. What do we mean by progressive? Oftentimes when I hear people talk about progressive prosecutors, it means someone who is trying to be actively anti-racist, someone who is trying to give you know, defense more of a, a fair shake, perhaps someone who is committed to not incarcerating people who have committed violent crimes. And 
that's great. I'm not saying that these are bad things. These mm-hmm. are good changes. Um, but I think that this is what good prosecutors should be doing in the first place if they are trying to be ministers of justice. So I guess what I'm saying is I'm glad that those changes are happening, but, you know, like the sort of famous song of the, like the late nineties, you know, that don't impress me much. Um, <laughs> like I'm not, I'm not overwhelmed by this, frankly. Um, and I, you know, I'm, I'm glad there are other people out there who are encouraging and much more sanguine about this because I, I do think that prosecutors need to have some sort of encouragement to keep doing this. Um, but this isn't something that we should just be satisfied with like, Oh, they're doing their job the way that, frankly, I think they should have been doing it in the first place and hooray, they're so great and doing such a great job. I think that aspirations are really important. You know, where can we take this office next? Um, And I think that the way that the criminal legal system is currently um, established and currently operating, I don't think you you can actually be a part of it as a prosecutor and call yourself progressive. I think it's actually a contradiction in terms. And in this next essay that will be coming out, um, I argue, and, you know, this sounds facetious, but, you know, partly isn't, that when I think of what a progressive prosecutor is, um, I actually think of one of my favorite TV characters, um, Ron Swanson from Parks and Recreation. He shows up to his work every day with the expectation and um, the goal to do absolutely nothing, and if anything, to flummox the purposes of his office. That's what I think a, pro- a progressive prosecutor would do. They would show up and try to essentially destroy their office and make it obsolete. Um, that's progressive in my head. Um, but I know that lots of people are going to disagree with me. Um, I know that lots of people are going to say, well, Professor Romero, aren't you making it such that you know the perfect is an enemy of the good? And no, I don't think so. Um, I think, again, that aspirational goals are really important um, and that they can really serve as a guide to us in trying to figure, okay, now what do we do next? Now that we've reached this goal of instituting this reform, which we should have had in the first place, where do we go now? Um, So I really don't think that you can be progressive and be a prosecutor, but I don't think that that um, that sort of statement on my end really prevents further reforms from happening either. I want to see that happen. I want my, what I would love to see at some point. And I remember having someone ask me this right when I started as an academic, like, Mm -hmm. well, what would you, what's a good prosecutor to you? And to me, a good prosecutor is someone who is constantly working for the obsolescence of their office (laughs) and using the power of their office to try to figure out, okay, what can we do to better communities, to make our communities healthier and safer without necessarily throwing people in jail and using the law as this completely reactive force every time. Um, But what can we do to make things better prospectively such that people don't feel the need to commit crime? Right. Um, So I guess I have a very sort of different vision as to what progressive prosecution means, as opposed to lots of people using this sort of buzz term nowadays. You've really hit our target demographic of fans of Shania Twain, Parks and Rec and legal scholarships. So thank you. (laughs) Great. (laughs) Um, Thank you so much for for your time today and and coming on and talking about your paper. Um, Professor Romero's paper, uh, Police and Prosecutors and Unholy Union is coming out in the volume 55 of the University of Richmond Law Review this year. Uh, and we look forward to, to publishing that. And, and it sounds like you have a ton of other stuff in the works as well. So 
um, we will link to to everything uh, that we can find in the the, the show notes. Um, but but yeah, thank you, thank you so much, Professor Romero. Thanks for having me on, Oliver. Well, that's all we've got time for today. Thank you very much for listening. If you'd like to contact the University of Richmond Law Review, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at URLawReview. My thanks to Professor Mabel Romero for coming on the show and to Sarah Clements for helping me put this show together. See you next time.